I hope you got your donuts. I hope you're ready to go. My hope is that I can bring to you a fresh look where you see stories that you know from of old, but see them through a new lens and a new insight, perhaps, that might give you that extra kick in your walk with the Lord. I start this morning with a story. I was uh, uh, on a hunting trip with Nino Scalia, uh, Justice Scalia from the U.S. Supreme Court. He's since passed away, and uh, uh, I miss him. Thank you. I'm fighting an illness, and uh, so I'll try not to spit on you on the front row, Um, but uh, thank you. Uh, I was on a hunting trip with him, and it was a Sunday lunch. In fact, I had taught class here and rushed out to the lease for a late Sunday lunch. And he held court among the six of us that were there. And as he was holding court, he said the following. My voice is shot, so I'm going to do my imitation as best as I can. He said the following. Lonesome dove. What was better, the book or the movie? Miniseries. He had just assumed everyone had seen it. He just assumed everyone had read it. And so we went in a circle around the table to talk about whether or not the miniseries or the book was better. And I was seated to Justice Scalia's left. So as we went around the table, I was the last one. And he looks at me and he says, all right, Mark, what do you think? And I said, well, I loved the miniseries. Robert Duvall and Tommy Lee Jones had those characters so down. And it was so entertaining and funny and poignant and touching. And I said, but then I read the book. And I realized how true the portrayal of the characters were. That that Duvall and Jones really got those characters. So when I'm reading the book, I heard their voices. I saw their faces. And I got all of the scenes from the TV show, but I got more. I said, so I'm going with the book. Because after I read the book, I read the prequel. And then I started to talk about And he said, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait a minute. You read the what? And I said, I read the prequel. He says, what is a prequel? That's not a word. And I said, yes, that's a word. And he says, what does it mean? And I said, it means in a series what came before. He said, do you know where it comes from? I said, yes, it comes from the Latin word pre, which means before, and qual, which is part of a series from the Latin, and then he jumps in, sequitur. That was the Latin word. Coil comes from sequitur. His dad was a Latin teacher. I said, I know that. And he says, well, you can't just take before and after and put them together and make a word. And I said, they did. (laughs) And he says, it's not a word. And I said, it's in the dictionary. He said, well, maybe it's in Webster's third But that's not really a dictionary anymore. And I said, it's in the Oxford English Dictionary. He looked at me and he goes, you don't know that. 
I said, yes, I know that. He says, you're bluffing. I said, I'm not bluffing. He says, how do you know that? I said, because it's a word. And they put words in the Oxford English Dictionary. He said, do you know how to do that Google thing? And I said, yes. He says, check it, check it. I Google Oxford English Dictionary. I get on the website. I look up prequel. It's a word. And he just starts doing his head like this and says, who'd have thought I'd live to the day to see the Oxford English Dictionary go the way of Webster's third. (laughs) I I did write, side note here, I did write the editors of the Oxford English Dictionary afterwards because I found out that they were coming out with a fourth edition. So I wrote them a letter on my legal letterhead. And I told them that this, please, if as gatekeepers of the Queen's English, in the name of all that is just and right about our fair tongue, would you remove this word? Because, you know, and, and I said, there's no greater court I can appeal to beyond you. And I put a blind copy on the letter to Scalia. And um, um, a couple of weeks later, I got a letter back from them. And they said, we can't take it out of the dictionary. It's a word. <laughs> so I took the letter back from him and I, was, I went up to see Scalia in his chambers in D.C. And I, he said, did you ever hear back from that guy? And I knew exactly what he meant. And I pulled the letter out and I said, here it is. And he looked at it and he goes, I can't believe them. This is horrible. <laughs> Prequel. It's a word. And it's a relevant word. Because I want to talk to you today about Genesis. Now, Genesis is one of the first five books of the Bible, right? We got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those five books carry a term among the theological elite. Do you know what they're called? They're called called the Torah if you're Jewish, which is Jewish for law or instruction. But they're also called the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch. Penta, like a pentagram, is five-sided. Penta means five in Greek. And two comes from the Greek word for a scroll. So these were originally five scrolls. They're also called the books of Moses by some. The Torah is another good word for them. But if we realize that these are five scrolls will understand that it's one coherent story it's just you know in today's language if i wanted to write um um um, who was it i was talking to who was it that came up and has been writing i won't embarrass her one of our class members has been writing the bible she's just decided to write the bible She's already written the entire New Testament. She's written the Psalms. She's now finished writing Genesis. She's just in in her journals, just rewriting the entire Bible. If you start writing on a piece of paper or in a journal and you run out of room, what do you do? Get another one. Thank you, Carol. Well, scrolls could only be made so long. So when you fill up a scroll... And you still got story to tell. What do you do? You get another one. That's also, by the way, why Luke and Acts are on two different scrolls. 
the Gospel of Luke takes up one entire scroll. So they got to start again with Acts and it takes up a whole other scroll and that's why it seems to stop in this weird place. So realize these are five scrolls, but they're one work. So if you look at them that way, you'll recognize quickly Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They tell the story of Moses. Exodus starts out with the birth of Moses. And Deuteronomy ends with the death of Moses. So you got one long story of Moses. Do you know what Genesis is? It's the prequel. Larry said, that's not a word. (laughs) Genesis is the prequel to the story of Moses. So if we're going to look at Genesis today, I want to introduce the book to you. This is introduction. Those of you who were thinking, oh, he's going to finally cover creation and evolution. Not today. We got to do this in order. And that means we need to introduce the book. So here's the way I've divided class up today. I want to talk about three different things. We're first going to talk about the setup. Now, Genesis sets up, as a prequel, it sets up an understanding for the rest of the books of Moses. But those all set up an understanding for the rest of the Old Testament. Which set up an understanding for the New Testament. Which set up an understanding of life for you and me. So this is very fundamental. The setup is very important and we need to see the setup that's in the prequel. Then I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about authorship. And the beliefs on who wrote Genesis range across a broad spectrum. And I'm only going to give you the basics because I've taught a class on this issue. And you can go grab that class if you want to. But we'll talk about authorship a little bit. And then the third thing I want to talk about are difficulties, which I would term opportunities. Because there are aspects of Genesis that present difficulties to us when we're reading them. But those difficulties are actually opportunities for us to get greater insight. I'm eager for us to understand the book of Genesis beyond the way it is taught to a four-year-old or a five-year-old. Because it can be taught with great benefit to a four- and five-year-old. I do not denigrate that at all. But it can also be taught with layers upon layers of incredibly important things that set up for us an understanding of Scripture. If we understand this is a book that's a prequel, that's a setup, it will radically change the way we see things. So with that, we'll start with the setup. Now, Genesis sets up an understanding for the rest of the Pentateuch. In what ways? Well, first of all, there's a cosmic setup. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
If you're reading it in Hebrew, you'll, 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 you'll learn some Hebrew phrases real quick. You'll learn Vayomer Elohim, which means, and he, God said, because he says over and over and over again. But you'll see he says, um, Vayahi Ha'or, let there be light. It's just two Hebrew words. Let there be light, or be light, actually, in the Hebrew. Be light. And then it says, and it was light. Same two words. God says it, it happens. But there's a cosmic setup. Then after the cosmic setup, we've got a setup of sin and its consequences. So God creates Adam and Eve and places them in the Garden of Eden. Adon. And Eden in Hebrew conveys the idea of luxury. Delight. Could be translated abundance. So God creates and puts Adam and Eve in a garden of delight and abundance. Think six-star hotel. Think spa day. Think easy street. Think better than donuts. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you can eat eat of all of the trees of this abundant, luxurious, delightful place. But, there's one tree you better not eat of. You eat that, you die. Then, what do Adam and Eve do? They eat of it. And there's this setup of sin and its consequences. Because before sin, God's talking to Adam and Eve. There's a clear idea. They hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That's what God did. He would walk with them. He would talk with them. He had a relationship with them. And because of sin, that relationship was torn asunder. With sin, the man and his wife hide themselves from the presence of God. This is a prequel. Did I tell you all that? This is a prequel. And so this is supposed to be in your brain when you get to that high priestly blessing that God writes. One of the few blessings in the Bible where God writes the blessing and God says, you pronounce this over the people. And the blessing includes, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The face of God is what is translated here, presence of the Lord God. This is a key passage to get to. That God's blessing is that you won't hide from him. But you will stand and let his face shine into your life. We don't understand the blessing if we haven't read the prequel. It sets up 
that there was a world of harmony and blessing, but it becomes a world of struggle and curse. So instead of the land of abundance and delight, they're living in a land of thorns and thistles and painful childbirth for the woman. Had five kids, didn't really hurt me that much at all. (laughs) It sets up prophecy. Because God announces a prophecy over the serpent. In Genesis 3.15, God says, I'm going to put enmity, enmity between you and the woman. Between your work, your offspring, what you're doing, and her offspring. By the way, offspring there is male, masculine in in, uh, gender, and it's singular. He will bruise your head. And you will bruise his heel. That is a prophetic setup that we need to understand. That prophecy is further delineated. It's not just from the offspring of woman. But as you keep reading, you'll read in Genesis 12 that God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and the ones that dishonor you I will curse. And in you, Abraham... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. (coughs) Excuse me. The prophecy will go through Abram. That's where the blessing's coming. That's where the one who will crush the serpent is coming. That's not just through Abram. The prophecy is further delineated. God says to his son Isaac, I will multiply your Isaac's offspring as the stars of heaven and i'll give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed he further delineates it after that to the son jacob chooses jacob over esau again this is a prequel So we're going to read in Exodus about how God begins to give the land out. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. How God plans to give the land out and gets them over to the promised land. But then that becomes foundational for the rest of the Bible. Even Paul's referencing back the fact that God made the selection to go through Jacob, not his older twin brother Esau. So Genesis reads, Jacob... Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. You'll spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. See, all of the genealogies that we're going to read become links in a chain. Now, there are some other genealogies that aren't part of the prophetic chain, but they're just as important in their own right, or they wouldn't be there, and we will look at those. So, Genesis sets up prophecy, sets up sin and its consequences, it sets up the cosmos. Genesis also sets up God and revelation. 
this is a Bible. It says, Bible. And what is the Bible? There are fundamentally two different approaches we can take to Scripture. If God is here, and you and I are down here, All right. One idea, what is the Bible? Here, we'll put the Bible up here. This is the Holy Bible. One idea is that the Bible are human musings about God. They're what people think God (coughs) is about, what God must be doing, how to perceive things. The alternative is that the Bible is God's revelation to humans. Genesis sets this up. Genesis explains it ain't this because left to themselves, humans can't even build a tower. Left to themselves, they become a rotten seeded race that doesn't see God. Over and over and over, Genesis, the prequel says, God is speaking. God is doing it. God divides the light from the darkness. God's the one who says this. God's the one who says this. God's the one who says this. See, the, the, the understanding that we'll get from this is that revelation, you know, you and I can walk around and try to figure out who God is. People do it all over the world and throughout all time. And they can come up with some ideas. And some of them are better than others. <clears throat> but we are so lost and we are so fallen That we need God to reveal himself to us. And scripture is God's revelation to us. And Genesis is the prequel that sets that up. So if we see Genesis as the prequel, we'll know then we should never be reading these other books apart from Genesis. And since they're the foundation of Scripture, we should not be reading any of our theology apart from Genesis. Because Genesis sets up that understanding for the Pentateuch as well as the rest of Scripture. You with me? All right, let's go to the second point. So what do we do about authorship? Do you know the name Moses? isn't even in the book of Genesis? You and I care a lot about authorship. Most people do. So I was trying the opioid case up in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, a year before last, I think it was. And um, the bad guys, as I call the other side, the bad guys had hired 
a, a, a set of experts to come in. And one of their experts was this doctor from California. And he looked it. Now we're trying this case in Cleveland, Ohio, which is not like California. But this guy had the Southern California tan. He had the perfect bright smile. He had that hair just the way you like it. He was dressed pretty dandy. And he was just like a cool breeze blowing in the courtroom. And the bad guy lawyers put him on the stand. And they asked him all of these wonderful questions to really help their case. And they, they you know, and he... He, he'd been through witness school, I think, because he'd, he'd listen to those, he'd look over at the jury and he'd just smile. And he'd say, you know, it, it's like this and like that. And it was almost, I mean, it was, it was ballet. The problem is, when you're trying a case against me, it's not a ballet. It's more like World Wrestling Federation. <clears throat> And I was determined to do the Texas Tombstone pile driver on this doctor who was there in his tutu doing some pirouette or something. So I'd gotten his resume. In court, they're called a CV. It's for the Latin curriculum vitae. Actually, in Latin would be pronounced curriculum vitae, but nobody says that. They say curriculum vitae. Because nobody reads Latin anymore except Scalia, and he's dead. Um, and I had put on experts. One of the experts I'd put on was from California. She was uh, from Stanford University. She's like smarter than a tree full of owls. Her, her CV, her resume, was like an inch thick. She'd written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles that are published in what's called a peer-reviewed journal. Peer-reviewed means you don't just send in an article and they publish it. They'll take the article, they'll send it out to three specialists in that area. And those three specialists will read it to see if they think it's valid science, good science, and does it contribute to the field. And they'll make their comments. And all of this gets done before it's decided whether or not to be published. She's got hundreds and hundreds of these. And so the first thing I did is I held up her CV and I said, Now you're here as the counterpart to Dr. Lemke. Anna Lemke is her name. Dr. Lemke. And he says, Oh, well, I'm just here to say what I'm here to say. <laughs> And I said, um, I said, well, I've got your two-page CV here, and it looks like you wrote an article. And he says, well, uh, I tend to treat people other than just write. I said, yeah, Dr. Lemke treats people as well. She's just written, what, five, six hundred articles. Uh, but you've got one. Here it is. I put it up there. I said, that's your article? He said, yes. I said, no, it's not. 
He said, yes, it is. I said, no, it's not. He said, yes, it is. I said, no, it's not. He said, what are you talking about? I said, I got the article. You didn't write it. Your name's not on this article. He says, you actually have the article? I said, yeah, right here. You didn't write it. You're claiming you wrote something you didn't write. He said, oh, well, the article you have is another article that just happens to have the exact same seven-word title as my article. But uh, uh, I I wrote an article with the exact same title. I said, but this is the publication you said it's in. Well, clearly my staff typed the wrong publication. My article was in a different journal. Which one? You know, I don't remember. I said, how do you not remember? You only have one. I said, well, we're going to take a lunch break. Why don't you call your staff over lunch? See if they can remember. I said, because I'm looking here. I'm on Google. And I put up Google for everybody. Or PubMed, I think maybe it was, which is like Google for doctors. Um, I'm up here with PubMed. It doesn't, he says, well, PubMed doesn't list every journal. I said, well, they list every one that doctors would use. He says, oh, I, all I can tell you is I wrote, I wrote that article. Just, I said, no, you didn't. And the jury was like, no, you didn't. <laughs> Authorship in our day and age means something important. I don't want to pop your bubble. But back in Old Testament times, it really didn't. It just wasn't. They didn't view it as important as we do. That's why a lot of the things that we read in the Old Testament, we're not sure who wrote them. So when it comes to Genesis and who wrote it, there's a range of options. Some scholars will say he wrote absolutely, Moses wrote absolutely every word in Genesis. And some will say Moses wrote absolutely no word. And these options depend, and you'll read different things, and, and I've, I've taught on this, and I've written on this, so you're welcome to go find that. I won't go into great depth. But for example, one of the issues is the history of writing. For a long time, scholars thought that there was no writing that Moses would have been able to even write it. And we know better than that now. We know, in fact that there, are, there, there were two areas of writing that developed in the ancient Near East. One is a cuneiform, which was already being written back in the time, cuneiform. And that's a series of wedges that was made into wet clay with a stylus. And so you get these weird-looking uh, arrows, and, and I mean, it, it's a bizarre language, and al- or alphabet, actually. It's, it's used for many different languages. But in addition to that, which was in Mesopotamia, so that's, think of that as north of Israel. Whoops. But south of Israel, you've got the land of Egypt. And Egypt had these hieroglyphs, these pictures. And so, for example, let me give you a, an, an Egyptian hieroglyph. This, if you, you want to read Egyptian, you're there... And you're like in uh, the tomb of Pharaoh, whoever. And you see this on the wall. Do you know what that is? Water. (laughs) Shazam. Somebody's good. They were very creative. 
The word for water in ancient Canaanite-type languages sounds a little bit like, in fact, this is the Hebrew word that I'm going to be using, but it sounds like Mayim. So Mayim is the ancient Hebrew word for water. Now, somewhere in the turquoise mines of Mount Sinai, not Mount Sinai, but the Sinai Peninsula, in the mountains of the Sinai Peninsula, in those turquoise mines, probably three or four hundred years before Moses, it seems, they were developing Canaanites who were slaves and workers in the mines were taking Egyptian hieroglyphs and they figured out that they could just use them for the sound they made. And that becomes the alphabet. And so, Mayim, what does it sound like? Mum, 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 You know how in Korean, we have a Korean speaker down here, in Korean how the alphabet, sometimes the when you're looking at what a letter is, the and you name the letter, the, 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 the letter sound at the beginning is repeated at the end of the letter. And so when you say the letter's name, you've got the, like here, Mayim, you've got the ma ma at both ends of the word for that letter. And so this becomes the letter for the sound of M. And our letter still looks like it. An M... Those are the waves from the hieroglyph. It's just made it through 3,500 years. And it's, it's not just that, but other letters as well. And so history of writing, there's certainly writing. Now Moses is not speaking or writing in the Hebrew dialect of Genesis. The Hebrew dialect of Genesis is a little bit different. So Moses would have been using what some scholars call proto-Sinaitic or proto-Canaanite. But it's very clearly the father language to what became Hebrew. And it's it's very understandable. So the idea of Moses writing is certainly in the world of, of... Look, Moses could write. That's the bottom line. And people who say he couldn't need to open up their minds. They just don't want him to write. Now, you'll also, if you look through commentaries, you'll find a lot of commentaries that deal with what's called the documentary hypothesis. This was developed, especially pronounced in its original accepted form of sorts by a guy named Julius Wellhausen, who was a German theologian. And he was trying to examine why sometimes in the Old Testament, especially in the Torah, In Genesis, for example, you'll see God referenced as Elohim, which is a general Hebrew word for God. Other times you'll see the the name of God used, Yod-Heh, Vav-Heh in the Hebrew, or Yahweh as we would say it. And so he decided that the Bible was put together at a much later date. These books were put together, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, put together by, by somebody combining four different sources of original material. I don't have time to deal with that in detail. I don't think that holds merit. I, I, don't, I don't 
frankly, I don't think that would last in a court of law for 10 minutes of cross-examination. But there are, it's, it's a dominant thought in the field, and you can't pick up a, a commentary with certain types of scholars without reading about it. I think it's very important for us, as people who believe in Scripture, to look at what Scripture says about this issue. And so we're going to do this quickly in the interest of time, but I want to give you a flavor for it. Exodus 26.4 says that Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. But if you read that in context, it looks like he's writing down portions of the law. It doesn't say he's writing everything that we know to be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you continue looking, you'll see in Exodus 34, Moses wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, i.e. the Ten Commandments. So Moses would have written the Ten Commandments out. You can continue reading in Numbers 33 too. Moses wrote down their starting places, the journey, stage by stage. God told him to. And these are the stages according to their starting places. Then as you keep reading through the Old Testament, you'll see repeated references to the law of Moses, the Torah of Moses. A reference to those five books. But it doesn't mean that it's written by Moses. It can just as easily mean that it's written about Moses. Like, I can talk to you about the biography of Steve Jobs. That doesn't mean he wrote it. He didn't. But it's of him. So we we don't know for sure. So you've got these repeated Old Testament references to the law of Moses. And those are there. But then you've got this passage. John 1.45. The Apostle Philip finds Nathanael and says to him, We found him of whom Moses in the Torah. We have found him of whom Moses in the Torah and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. But again... Doesn't mean Moses wrote every word of the Torah. That's most likely a reference to the passage in Deuteronomy 18. Where Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and from your brothers. And it's to him you'll listen. Israel's been waiting for that. You'll find at the end of Deuteronomy, it says, And there's been no one like Moses since. You'll find that theme repeated Throughout the Old Testament, they never had anyone like Moses. Not even Elijah was like Moses. Nobody liked Moses. So they were still expecting someone like Moses. That Moses said, listen to. And Philip tells Nathaniel, I think we found him. Now, if we read carefully Genesis and these other books, we will see that there has been some editing that's been done. What I would urge us to realize is the Old Testament teaches firmly that there are genuine prophets from God who speak the word of the Lord. Deber Adonai, the word of the Lord, comes to the prophets. Those prophets would have done a good job editing Genesis because they're editing under the influence of the Holy Spirit. But if you take a passage like Genesis 11.31, Terah takes Abram, uh, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, and a bunch of other kids and grandkids and you name it, nieces and nephews. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. 
Well, there was a town named Ur at the time of Abraham, but it was not Ur of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans didn't move in and take over Ur until hundreds and hundreds of years later. A thousand plus years later. So this is some editing by someone under the Holy Spirit who wanted to make sure we knew which Ur it was. Similarly, if you look at a passage like this, Genesis 14, 14, Abram hears that his kinsman's been taken captive. It's Lot and has got family. So he leads forth his trained men and he goes in pursuit as far as Dan. The name Dan was not the name of that town until the Israelites conquer it after Egypt hundreds of years later. At the time of Abraham, the town would have been called Laish. It still would have been called Laish at the time of Moses. It's when Joshua and the people, uh, the Danites, conquer it. And it says it in Joshua 18, verse 29, they conquered Laish and they renamed it Dan. So there is some editing which we would expect. And that does not change the fact that in Jewish theology, the book of Genesis has always indisputably been part of accepted scripture or the canon. In Jewish thought, Larry Lipton, in Jewish thought, canon, the way they talked of scripture being holy scripture, is it was scripture that made the hands unclean. And the reason why it makes the hands unclean is you do not pick up Genesis or anything else without washing your hands first because it shows your hands are unclean just by being there. So you wash your hands, then you can pick it up. And when you put it back down, you wash your hands again. That's the reference to what was authoritative scripture. And Genesis has always been there. All right, we've got 12 more minutes. We're going to spend time over the next several months, God willing, looking at passages that will include difficulties. But I want you to understand those aren't difficulties that are something that that should bother you. Those are difficulties that are opportunities for us to understand better than we did. So types of literature. We have lots of types of literature today. Uh... How-to manuals. We get those, right? I don't like them. You know, I, 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 get, I, I buy things that have instructions. I wad the instructions up and throw them away. I'm a guy. We don't read instructions. We see those as one person's suggested recommendation of how we might go about it. I have on my shelf a physics textbook. Actually, a bunch of them. We have textbooks. We have textbooks about physics. We have textbooks about all sorts of things. We have self-help guides. Strengthening your marriage. But we recognize that there are different types of literature today. And we need to know that there have always been different types of literature And the creator, creative, 
God should never be limited in what resources he uses to reveal himself to us. And so we should not, you know, when, when I was, uh, I just graduated, it was right before I started law school, I was visiting with my preacher, and he asked me some question, do you think God can do this and that? Or he said, the Holy Spirit can do this and that. And I said, you know, the Holy Spirit's God. And I just kind of made a decision. I'm not going to tell God what he's allowed to do and what he's not. It's not my job. God did not put me on this earth to draw a box around him and say, well, God can do this, but no, God, God's not allowed to do that. <laughs> That's not quite my role. Holy Spirit's God. God can do anything God wants to do. God can use different types of literature. That should be expected by us. And we should know how to read with discernment. We should know how to read and tell the difference between God using a picture and an image and God giving factual details. So, for example, has anybody ever been bothered to read Psalm 139, 13? You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. How many of you believe that God gets knitting needles and climbs inside your mother's uterus when you're being born and starts knitting? No. That's just a beautiful illustration for the fact that God has taken care and devotion to form and shape you into the perfect scarf, booty, coat, sweater, Washcloth moms knitted me washcloths, actually crocheted. Socks? She crocheted me a pair of socks. They're pretty incredible. They're red and black, Texas Tech. Go. <laughs> Who clearly is better than Tarleton State in football? That's about it, but we did beat them. So we've got types of literature, we've got language. We've got a different cultural setting. Greg and I were emailing about this uh, uh, over the week. If you look at the book of Acts, by the way, um, yeah, let me do it this way. If this, this is actually, this is a scene from one of the edifices built for Pharaoh Seti I. Pharaoh Seti I was the Pharaoh in whose house Moses was raised. Reared. He raised chickens, reared children. Moses was reared. And if you listen to Stephen's speech, Stephen in the book of Acts, in his big defense before he gets stoned, says Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and deeds. That's how I know he knew how to write. He was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Moses is on Mount Sinai. And if we don't read the revelation to Moses, understanding that God's speaking to someone who was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, we are not going to read it with all of the punch and power that it should have. What's more, it's set in a cultural setting of the ancient Near East. 
with all of the stories that the ancient Near East had. And so when you see it in that cultural setting, you understand things like uh, the passage that the sun rises from the ends of the heavens. Its circuit is to the end of them. There's nothing hidden from its heat. It's not talking about the fact that the earth is stationary and the sun is moving, even though it uses that language. It's speaking in the culture and the concepts of the day. And that makes a big difference. The style and structure of Genesis, you're going to find fascinating. You're going to find that they use genealogies different then than we do. You're going to find this phrase, toledot in Hebrew. It's translated generally, these are the generations of. But it's used as the structure to outline Genesis. You'll find that the use of numbers was different then than they are now. So if you want to try and do the math and figure out when the world was created by the genealogies and the math, you're not going to get the answer that 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 is not what those numbers meant back then. And so we've got to try and understand this within the framework in which it's written. It gives a story-like history. It's giving history through the telling of stories. I don't mean by that that the stories are fictional. I just mean that stories are being used to tell this history of God relating to his people. And it's fascinating what that means. Because if you look, the narrator of the book of Genesis is never named, but is all-knowing. So clearly it's being narrated out of an understanding of God. Because you read it and all of a sudden you see that whoever's narrating it knows these private events. Knows about Jacob wrestling with the angel when nobody else was there. Except Jacob and the angel. Knows about things that nobody else should know about. Actually knows what people are thinking because is able to convey what people are thinking. But interestingly rarely gives a motivation you've got to read carefully to understand why Cain's sacrifice was not as acceptable as Abel's because the motivations aren't spelled out so clearly this story like history is fascinating because it uses figurative language at times it uses a narrative form at times Sometimes it uses poetry, and you'll find poetry in there. You'll also see that there are no real wasted words. Right now, if you read a novel, you read uh, The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, and you read that novel, and there will be all of these words that talk about um, you know, a scene set up to, to help you envision the scene. No, they didn't do that. The, the author of Genesis did not do that. Do you remember this? This was a slide from earlier today. Setup of sin and its consequences. Let me show you what I mean. There are no wasted words here. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is Adam and Eve after they sinned. Genesis 3.8. And look what it said. This is what I showed you. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. But I put three dots here. 
dot, dot, dot. And I did not show you the rest of the verse. The rest of the verse says, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God, here we go, among the trees of the garden. God said you can eat of any of these trees except that one. So they eat from the wrong tree. God comes in and they're not just hiding. They're already trying to justify what they've done. They've gotten as far from that tree as they could. They're among all the other trees. So the writer's not just wanting you to know where they were in the garden. He's got a point. Because this is a prequel. All right. So if it's a prequel, it will introduce the Pentateuch which will introduce the Old Testament, which will introduce the New Testament, which will introduce life. So I hope you'll come back next week. If you do, here's your homework. Read carefully Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 2-3. You say, oh, I've already read it. Read it again with this question. Find me the theme verse. Find me the theme verse for that. We'll talk about it next week or week after next. Here's your takeaway. First, God is speaking. And God said, you got in Genesis 1, 14 times a reference to God speaking. See, God is speaking. And not only is God speaking, but he's speaking his plan. All of this is the plan of God. Paul will say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Pre-Genesis. Pre-prequel. And that, my friends, is life-changing. Because Paul continues to say, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And as we work through this, the goal isn't simply to figure out Genesis, but it's to let God transform who we are. Okay? Let me bless you in the name of Jesus, and we'll see you next Sunday. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask your blessings upon us. I pray that you will give us a solid foundation for our faith, understanding your revelation to us. That has been planned from before the beginning of time. May we embrace your tender love for our life. In Jesus, amen.